Hello and welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick overview of what's new in the journal since our last podcast. I'll start with an article on masks and personal protection from SARS-CoV-2 infection that Annals published online on November 18th and has since garnered a lot of attention in the general and social media. The study, the only randomized trial of masks in the community in SARS-CoV-2 prevention, adds new evidence to what is known about whether masks protect the wearer from SARS-CoV-2 infection in a setting where public health measures, including social distancing, are in effect, but widespread mask wearing is not common. Researchers from Copenhagen University Hospital recruited 6,024 adults who spent at least three hours per day outside their homes, whose occupations did not require masks, and who did not have a previous known diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Participants were randomized into two groups. Both groups received advice to follow the public health and social distancing measures that were in effect in Denmark at the time, and one group also received a recommendation to wear a surgical face mask when outside the home, plus the supply of these masks. Of note, mask use outside of hospitals was uncommon in Denmark at the time. All participants completed weekly surveys and antibody tests with PCR testing if COVID-19 symptoms developed and at one month. After one month of follow-up, 1.8% of participants in the mask group and 2.1% in the control group developed infection. While the evidence excludes a large personal protective effect of mask wearing, it weakly supports lesser degrees of protection and cannot definitively exclude no effect. Of note, Danish authorities did not recommend masks during the study period and their use in the community was very uncommon. Public transportation and shops remained open, and recommended public health measures included quarantine of persons with SARS-CoV-2 infection, social distancing, frequent hand washing, and limited visitors to hospitals and nursing homes. According to the study authors, their findings offer evidence about the degree of personal protection mask wearers can anticipate in a setting where others are not wearing masks, but where other public health measures are in effect. The findings should not be used to conclude that a recommendation for everyone to wear masks in the community would not be effective in reducing SARS-CoV-2 transmission. The trial did not test the role of masks in source control, meaning whether masks prevent transmission from an infected person to others. Some have questioned whether it was irresponsible of animals to publish this study, knowing that some would misinterpret the findings as evidence that widespread mask mandates do not work. We chose to publish the trial because it is a well-designed study that provides an important piece of evidence to understand the puzzle of how to control the COVID-19 pandemic. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control recently updated their guidance to acknowledge that masks, when worn by all, may reduce transmission by both source control and personal protection. The DanMask trial does not conflict with these guidelines, but it shows that any contribution to risk reduction through personal protection is likely to be far less than through source control. The COVID-19 pandemic demands early licensing and deployment of a vaccine that provides worthwhile efficacy, but accomplishing this goal could compromise two ethical principles that guide clinical research, scientific validity and social value. Currently, five Western companies are conducting placebo-controlled phase three randomized clinical trials whose primary outcome is prevention of clinical disease. Several of these trials have reached a point where the manufacturers are applying for emergency use authorization. The authors of a commentary published online on November 20th note that the scenario will not answer questions about long-term efficacy and safety of the vaccine, which require many more months of data. 
The authors argue that to understand how to deploy different vaccines in the most optimal way, we must know their different characteristics and especially their long-term effects. While vaccinating everyone in the U.S. who wants a vaccine by April 2021, as recent predictions state, would be a great achievement, it would also intensify concerns about ethical issues surrounding early vaccine approval and deployment. The authors stress that it is important for us to plan to deal with these issues. Some studies suggest that a person's blood type may affect their risk for SARS-CoV-2 infection and for developing severe COVID-19-related illness. But the study's been small and findings have been inconsistent. On November 23rd, Alice published a large population-based cohort study that shed some new light on the potential association of blood type with SARS-CoV-2 infection. Researchers from Toronto studied 225,556 persons who had an ABO blood group test between January 2007 and December 2019 and were subsequently also tested for SARS-CoV-2. The population-based study was conducted in Ontario, Canada, which has universal health care and had widespread availability of SARS-CoV-2 testing at the time of the study. The authors found that O and Rh-negative blood groups were associated with a slightly lower risk for SARS-CoV-2 infection, as well as a slightly lower risk for severe COVID-19 illness or death. The clinical importance of the small differences that the authors found is uncertain. These findings emphasize that people, regardless of their blood type, should not feel that they are invulnerable to SARS-CoV-2 infection. The authors wonder whether similar differences by blood type will be seen within ongoing clinical trials studying the therapeutic efficacy of SARS-CoV-2 immunotherapy and vaccination. On November 23rd, we published an article that shows that if licensed soon, as it appears may happen, the rapidity of the development of a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine would be an unprecedented achievement. Researchers from McGill University reviewed trials testing viral vaccines that had not advanced to phase two between January 2005 and March 2020 on clinicaltrials.gov and tracked the progress of each vaccine from phase one through to FDA licensure to estimate timelines and probabilities of success for recent vaccine candidates. Ultimately, they found success probabilities and timelines varied widely across different vaccine types and diseases, but other than influenza vaccines, most vaccines were in the pipeline for a decade before licensure. Licensure of a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine within 18 months of the start of the pandemic will mark an unprecedented achievement for non-influenza viral vaccine development. We are learning that survivors of COVID-19, particularly those who become ill enough to require hospitalization, are a vulnerable population. However, little is known about the trajectory of recovery after a COVID-19 hospitalization. Authors from the University of Pennsylvania Schools of Nursing and Medicine, Villanova University, and the Visiting Nurse Service of New York describe the recovery of patients with COVID-19 who received post-hospitalization home care services. After an average of 32 days in home health care, 94% of patients were discharged and most achieved statistically significant improvements in symptoms and function. Factors associated with rehospitalization or death were male sex, history of heart failure or diabetes with complications, daily pain, cognitive impairment, and functional dependency. The researchers call for further research to determine longer-term outcomes of COVID-19 and to target extra attention to patients with apparent risk factors for poor outcomes. 
Next is a systematic review of published research that found, no surprise, that financial payments from the drug industry to U.S. physicians is associated with increased prescribing of that company's drug. The association was consistent across all studies, and several studies presented evidence that the association was not correlation, but causation, meaning the industry gifts cause physicians to prescribe differently. Financial payments from the drug industry to physicians is common and an issue of concern. Payments include both cash, typically for consulting services or invited lectures, and in-kind gifts such as meals or travel. From 2015 to 2017, estimates suggest that up to 67% of U.S. physicians received payments. This proportion exceeded 80% in some specialties such as medical oncology, orthopedic surgery, and urology. And in many specialties, the dollar value of personal payments has increased in recent years. Researchers from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center reviewed 36 published studies comprising 101 analyses to evaluate whether receipt of payments from the drug industry was associated with physician prescribing practices. The researchers found that the literature was unanimous. Literally every study found an association between gifts and prescribing, and the association was present among all specialties and drug types, including cancer drugs and opioids. According to the researchers, these results suggest that personal payments from industry reduce physicians' ability to make independent therapeutic decisions, and then they may be harmful to patients. They recommend that the medical community change its historical opposition to reform and call for an end to such payments. Next is a fascinating case report in which ingestion of a single AA battery sparked a reaction that mimicked myocardial infarction on electrocardiogram in an adult male patient. Researchers from San Giovanni di Dio Hospital in Florence, Italy, described the case of a 26-year-old male prison inmate who visited their emergency department for abdominal discomfort after deliberately swallowing a single battery two hours earlier. The patient had no history of cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular risk factors except for cigarette smoking. But his electrocardiogram revealed ST segment elevation consistent with acute ST elevation myocardial infarction. He did not report any symptoms related to acute MI. His serum troponin levels were within normal range and his transthoracic echocardiogram did not show alterations in cardiac wall motion or pericardial effusion. The clinicians removed the battery during endoscopy and all electrocardiogram abnormalities disappeared. Although the mechanism for this effect has not been established, the authors believe that a battery's entry into the acidic contents of the stomach might facilitate an electric current that travels to the inferior portions of the heart, causing changes on the electrocardiogram. Most of the articles in the December 1st issue were initially published online and highlighted in prior podcasts. New material in the issue includes a Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds, in which two experts debate whether to screen for pancreatic cancer in a patient with a family history of the disease. The December in the Clinic Review is on the diagnosis and management of patients with hearing loss, a very common problem. The issue also includes a Cases in Precision Medicine article that discusses the role of polygenic risk scores in assessing breast cancer risk. An interesting brief research report documents that, despite the growing prevalence of morbidity associated with overweight and obesity, many overweight and obese adults do not consider themselves to weigh more than is healthy. This may explain in part why many patients resist weight loss counseling. Finally, the December 1st issue is accompanied by a special supplement funded by the U.S. Resources and Services Administration on maternal morbidity and mortality in the United States. 
Maternal morbidity and mortality is a powerful barometer of the quality of any health system. Unfortunately, this barometer does not reflect well on the United States. The articles in this supplement shed light on this critical issue and suggest that maternal ill health is preventable. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll go to annals.org to read some of the new articles I've mentioned. Stay well and keep safe as the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic rages on. On December 16th, Annals and the American College of Physicians will be hosting a second virtual forum on COVID-19 vaccination that will focus on strategies to promote vaccine uptake once safe and effective vaccines become available, which hopefully will be very soon. Registration details will be available on ACP online very soon. And if you can't tune in on December 16th, the forum will be available to all on annals.org shortly afterwards. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.